Well, if you don't know me, I am uh, Landon, and I'm the pastor here at Restoration Church, and sometimes I don't know what we're doing, so uh, we'll be opening up to the book of Esther in just a few minutes. We just started a series last week, uh, so if you have a Bible, uh, feel free to turn there. That's where we'll be spending our time. Before that, just a, uh, a few quick notes. I don't know if Nate mentioned it or not, but thanks for uh, joining with us as our seating's a little bit different this morning. Nate and uh, everybody, Ben and Danae and, and Josh was with us and Keenan did an amazing job on Thursday night. We had a worship night, so we set it up differently and it just made more sense to leave it for at least today. So thanks for uh, bearing with us and embracing it as we uh, kind of sit like this this morning. A few announcements for you. The first is uh, that last week I talked about Bot Beautifully. Bot Beautifully is an, just an incredible organization and uh, I talked about Colin and Emily Betzler, they're the ones that lead this organization, and the Give with Impact event that is coming up, Acker Weekend, they'll be open Friday, Saturday, and Sunday here in our lobby, and if you were with us last year, you know what it's about. I'm going to let them share uh, with you from this video. Before that, though, as you hear this, you're going to see all of these people and stories kind of flashing by on the screen in the video, and, and as you do, I want you not to think about, like, statistics or just to see a face, but think about stories. These are real people with real stories, with real needs, real people that Jesus gave his life for. And so as you hear from them, I would love for you to think about not just what's going on or where your mind gets distracted about, but like people around the world that need our help. And we have a pretty incredible opportunity to help this Christmas season. So go ahead and, and listen uh, to Colin and Emily. Hello, Restoration Church. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Emily. I'm Colin. And we run Bought Beautifully, which is a marketplace that transforms lives. And it's also a ministry that you guys support. We just wanted to pop in to say thank you for your guys' support and then to tell you about an exciting event that we have coming up. So in a couple weeks, we will be down there in about less than a month to bring you Give with Impact, which those of you who were around last year, hopefully you remember it. Um, and it is a holiday pop-up market. And so what Bought Beautifully does is partners with ministries around the globe who are living out God's call to love. And we curate and bring their products um, to you and to people so that they can shop um, specifically this holiday season and use their Christmas gifts to pour into these ministries and to these organizations who are being the hands and feet of Christ around the globe. Last year's event equated to three full-time jobs for our partners around the world. So it was a significant event. We're excited to be back. Yes, and so we today just wanted to um, let you guys know that it's coming, tell you to mark your calendars, and then we also need help to make this event successful. Last year we had the most amazing group of volunteers, and we are hoping to have that happen again. So if you are interested in being a volunteer for Give With Impact, we'll talk to Kimberly. She'll be there, and she'll be in the back. We'll be there three days, the weekend of Akronite, and we will just be bringing products from around the globe to support ministries, and we would love you guys to be a part of this. So Colin and Emily will be here uh, the week before, so December 8th, and then the actual event will begin on the 13th and go through the 15th. Uh, and again, it just really is something where we actually have a chance to make an impact. I was telling last service, you know, I think too often we hear like, hey, this is a life-changing thing, whatever it is. This actually is. Like that statistic Colin gave of three full-time jobs, I don't know if you've ever been in a place where you wonder like, how do we get through this? How is God going to provide? Does he hear? Well, we as a church have an opportunity to change three people's, three families' lives for a full year. 
And here's the thing, it's not just for a year, this creates sustainability. And so their work is, is really powerful and I'm excited for us to partner with them. Uh, I would love for you to consider helping us out with that event and it's all one weekend. If you're interested, I'd love for you to fill out one of the Get Connected cards. Uh, depending on where you're sitting, it's either in the, the seat back in front of you or there's some in the back of the room. And just write your name and contact info and pop beautifully and then we will uh, we'll reach out. Next up, uh, a week from today, we will be having our Advent kickoff. And the reality is that the Christmas season is just insane and busy and maybe in one word, full, maybe stressful. And so we're going to ask you to do one more thing, but... I actually think this will provide freedom from the chaos in this. Uh, if you have a desire to lead your family through Advent and through the Christmas season and to guide them to center it on Christ, Whitney's going to provide that opportunity for you for the whole month. So it's one event, but it's really going to give you direction and, and save you time throughout the month if you have a desire to lead your family through the Christmas season. And so you'll be working with your kids if you have kids. Uh, and at the end of the night, you're going to be given this guide that will prepare you for each day leading up to Christmas to say, here's how we're going to center ourselves on Christ and the gift that he is. And so Whitney's put a lot of work into this. She's done an amazing job. We'll be in the studio at 4 p.m., uh, which is the room behind the, the glass garage door over there next Sunday. So we'd love to have you join us for that. And then lastly, Acker will be that same weekend as Bob Beautifully. Nate and a team will be performing in this room. If you've not been a part of Acker before, it's the Acker Music Festival. All of downtown goes crazy and pretty much everywhere there is a space. There is a, a venue and an artist performing. And so there's two really cool things that happen on Acker Night. One, the first command that God gives us is to cultivate, to co-create with him before there's even a need for sin. And so we talk frequently about collaborating with our city. Well, our city's doing something really good on that night. And we get to just be one part of it in this room. But secondly, we have the opportunity in this moment to be hospitable. So people are going to go from venue to venue, building to building. But we have an opportunity by the way we're intentional with this space and ourselves. For them when they lay down that night, when they call it quits, to go, there was something different about that space. And what's different is the spirit of the people. So I would love for you, if you are a part of Restoration to Commit, just one hour that night, not to, to consume, although it will be enjoyable to hear from Nate, but to go, how can we change people's night just by the way we're hospitable and listen and love and welcome because the Spirit works in those ways. So with that said, Esther chapter 1, verse 12, and we'll be going through uh, chapter 2, verse 4. Last week was kind of our introduction into the series, and today's going to be similar with kind of a slightly different angle. We actually won't even meet the character of Esther in this story until next week. But, but last week I talked about how there's kind of some backstory we have to understand for Esther to go from being just a cool story to actually going, what is God trying to teach us from this book? Why is it in the scriptures? Uh, again, it's one of the most controversial books in the scriptures because it doesn't ever mention the name of God. And so we ask, how can a book that doesn't mention the name of God be included in the book about God. And we kind of went through the, the scriptures from Genesis to Esther. And so I'm going to just briefly recap so we can understand. And the question we asked was this, what or who is the Bible about? Oftentimes we hear 
crazy stories, especially in the Old Testament, and, and they kind of fall into one of three categories. We go, that's just a cool story. We use those in Sunday school, right? Or maybe there's some good values or moral lessons we should grab a hold of. Or maybe there's some really good people that we're supposed to be like. And that's just not what the Bible is about. The Bible is about Yahweh God, who is the one true, perfectly loving, eternally faithful God who is always in control. And the story starts with Abraham, if you remember last week. And God makes a promise to this man named Abraham when he has no children. And he says, you are going to grow into a mighty nation. I'm going to give you a land and you will be a blessing to all nations, which throughout the scriptures we learn to mean will provide salvation to all the nations. But right away, literally one verse after God makes this promise, Abraham runs into trouble. The promise is in jeopardy. Very quickly, he decides to lie about his wife and call her his sister so that he doesn't die. And his wife is then taken into another man's home because he lied that way, which doesn't go well, as you can imagine. And so God has to intervene through dreams and plagues and visions, and God saves Sarah from this other man's house. And Abraham is kind of slow to, to figure it out, and so eight chapters later, he does the same thing. He's worried about himself, and so he says, hey, this is my sister, not my wife. Another man who thinks she's beautiful takes her into his home. And again, you go, this whole, like, becoming a nation thing is not going to work out very well if his wife is in the house of another man. But God intervenes again to show that he is in control always, and he's faithful even when his people are not. Still, Abraham and Sarah can't have children, not for one or two or five or ten or twenty years, but until Abraham is 100. And so last week we talked about why would God wait until he's so old? That's awfully old. I joked that having kids now is tiring. I can't fathom that at 100. And there's only one reason. So that everybody that reads this and so that Abraham himself would know when he doubts that it was only God who made this possible. God was the one who would deliver this promise. Abraham was just along for the ride and to have faith in him. Eventually, their, their son Isaac is born. He has a son named Jacob, and Jacob is just a mess. He's a deceiver. His brother absolutely hates him because he steals from his brother multiple times. And his brother tries to kill him, ends up not, though. And eventually, Jacob has his own family, and he has a son named Joseph who is his favorite. And Joseph flaunts that, and his brothers hate him for it. This is a messed up family. I mean, the patriarch lies about his wife. She ends up in another man's house multiple times. The brothers hate each other. They're favorites. It's not good. Eventually, they hate Joseph so much that they decide to kill him. But at the last second, a caravan of slave traders comes by, and so they decide economically, you know what, we could just sell him to these guys. He'll die in Egypt anyway. We'll get what we want plus some money. That's like a win-win. They do. Years later, after he's falsely accused of rape, spends time in prison, is neglected and abused and goes through decades of wondering what is going on. God provides a way and he works his way up to being second in command of all of Egypt, the most powerful nation at the time and the controller of the world's food supply. Meanwhile, his brothers and his father, who thinks he's dead, are out of food, so they send the family to Egypt where it just so happens that the brother they tried to kill, whom they decided to sell into slavery, controls the world's food supply. And he provides for them. I go, who is this book about? It's not crazy stories. It's not morals or values. And it's not good people we should be like. 
It's saying there's one person who's faithful. It's not us. It is him. Eventually, they, they run into more issues in Egypt because God's promise came true. They became a great and powerful nation. Too powerful, in fact. So Pharaoh looks in and says, I'm worried about how great of a nation they're becoming. And so he enslaves them. He abuses them. He beats them. And they start dying until they cry out. And once again, their faithful God provides. He leads them out of Egypt into the wilderness where they have no food. And he provides food. Where they have no water and he provides water. And where they're attacked multiple times and he protects them. Eventually, he, he provides for them the land he promised to Abraham. They enter and he says, here's how life will be good if you follow me. And they do for a while. And then they forget him and they reject him and they rebel against him. And they're taken captive and conquered again until the next generation remembers, oh, hey, we've heard the stories from our father and his father and his father that there's this faithful God who listens if we cry out to him. And so they cry out to Yahweh God and he saves them. And the next generation forgets. They rebel. They're oppressed. They cry out to God and he's faithful. He saves them. The next generation forgets. And you have this contrast of an unfaithful people who are continuously loved by the faithful God. And where we pick up in Esther is in one of those cycles where they've now been conquered and oppressed again. They're spread out all over the world. And some of them find themselves, find themselves in Persia where King Xerxes is reigning and he is the powerhouse, the most powerful man in the world. And here's what we read in verse 4. It kind of sets the tone and gives us the thesis for the entire book of Esther. It says this. He displayed, that's the key word, the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days. So he spends almost a half year displaying how great he is, how wealthy he is, how much power he has, and the fact that he is in control. And so we see pretty quickly his display greatly contrasts the rest of the scriptures which display that it's Yahweh God who is in control and is faithful and is loving. This king spends 180 days to honor himself. We remember this is an honor and shame culture, not like ours. So the greatest thing Xerxes can experience and have is honor. And the worst thing that he can have is shame. But 180 days is not enough honor. So he says, you know what, let's do seven more days. And we're not going to stop day or night. It's going to be one long open bar. I will not say no to anyone who wants a drink for seven days and seven nights. And it is crazy. No expense is spared. And why is he doing this? To honor himself and display that he's in control. And then as if that's not enough, he decides, you know what, we need one more thing. He, he decides to call his wife and really to demand that she comes, <coughs> excuse me, to show off her beauty so that everyone else can see that this woman belongs to him. And it's thought that when he says she should come with her crown, that meant with only her crown, to which she refuses and so he spent over a half a year saying, look at how great I am and everyone does what I say. And then in one moment, this woman ruins his whole plan and he goes from a display of honor to a half year wasted and now he has the greatest shame. And in a book where the name of God is not mentioned, we're seeing how he's already working in control for the sake of his people. What we're going to see throughout the story of Esther, and we'll see this today, is this. This contrast between King Xerxes, who is grasping for straws of control. He's losing it, and so he's doing everything he can to grasp and hang on to it. And he's also grasping for pleasure. 
And that's going to contrast Yahweh God, who never grasps for control because he has it fully, and who doesn't grasp for pleasure because he has everything he needs. So rather, Jesus gives lavishly, which we'll talk about. Let's begin reading in uh, verse 13. The king consulted the wise men who understood the times, for it was his normal procedure to confer with experts in law and justice. The most trusted ones were Karshina, Shathar, and Matha, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, and Memucan. They were the seven officials of Persia and Media who had personal access to the king and occupied the highest positions in the kingdom. So there's a couple important details. They are the wise men of the day. They understand the times, and they are experts. There's people in our cultural moment who are considered the wise men of the day, who claim to be experts, and who claim to understand the times, and we often look to them. But again, there's a, a contrasting display being made here. These men think that they are guiding, leading, and orchestrating the world. They're controlling the moment. But all the while they think that's happening, it's actually God who's putting the dominoes in place to save his people, who've been unfaithful, but he's still faithful. We continue to read in verse 15. The king asked, according to the law, what should be done with Queen Vashti since she refused to obey King Xerxes' command that was delivered by the eunuchs? Mamukin said in the presence of the king and his officials, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but all the officials and the peoples who were in every one of King Xerxes' provinces. For the queen's actions will become public knowledge to all the women. All the women are now a problem. And cause them to despise their husbands and say, everyone's going to have marital issues. King Xerxes ordered Queen Vashti brought before him, but she did not come. Before this day is over, the noble women of Persia and Media who hear about the queen's act will say the same thing to all the king's officials, resulting in more contempt and fury. And they don't want that. Verse 19, if it meets the king's approval, he should personally issue a royal decree. Why? Because he's in control and he can. Let it be recorded in the laws of Persia and Media so that it cannot be revoked. Vashti is not to enter King Xerxes' presence, and her royal position is to be given to another woman who is more worthy than she. The decree the king issues will be heard throughout his vast kingdom, that's what's on display, so all women will honor their husbands, from the least to the greatest. The king and his counselors approved the proposal, and he followed Memukin's advice. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to each province in its own script, and to each ethnic group in its own language. This next part is key. That every man should be master of his own house and speak in the language of his own people. So we have two continuing themes, honor and control. Honor and control. And this is why the book of Esther is written, to discuss these two things. And so we see King Xerxes doing what we do, grasping for control with everything in him. Either control he wants that he doesn't have, or trying to maintain the control he fears losing. And it greatly contrasts God, who never grasps for control because he fully has it. I referenced earlier the book of Judges in last week where we experienced the cycle of God providing for his people, one generation forgetting. They call out to God after they're oppressed, and he saves them, and then the cycle continues. The book of Judges may be of all the books of the Bible and all the 
uh, descriptions we have in it perhaps provides the greatest glimpse of just how in control God is other than Jesus on the cross. And so we're going to go through the book of Judges in like five minutes so we can see what God is actually doing through it, what actually matters. There's some crazy stories, but they're not the point. So we'll start in Judges 3, 9, which says this. The Israelites cried out to the Lord because he's faithful. So the Lord raised up Othniel, son of Canaz, Caleb's youngest brother, as a deliverer to save the Israelites. So there's one key detail we want to grasp from this. Caleb's youngest brother. In this culture, to be the youngest is to be the weakest. To be the younger is not the, the place of privilege and honor, but you have low expectations. Not much is expected of you. You're not going to be great. You're not going to be given money. You're just the youngest. You're the weakest. The least expected, the least potential. You don't have a lot going for you. That must be happening somewhere over here. <clears throat> And so what does God do with the youngest and the weakest? He chooses that one to save the nation. This is the first judge. And so the theme will begin here. We move on to the next sequence. So God saves. The people reject and rebel from him again. They're not good at following him. They'd rather trust themselves. They're oppressed. And then six verses later, we read about the second judge. This is what we read. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he raised up Ehud, son of Gerah, a left-handed Benjamite. As a deliverer for them, the Israelites sent him to Eglon, king of Moab, with tribute money. Here's the important detail. He's left-handed. So in this culture and moment, to be left-handed was to be considered defective. This is not the guy that's going to fight battles and be in charge and save the people. But who does God choose? The weakest and the least expected. Why? So that we wouldn't think the story's about us. To put on display that he's fully in control. He doesn't need the most powerful, the most affluent, the most effective, the most influential. He's going to intentionally choose the weakest, the least expected to show, I have no worries. I have no concerns. I'm fully in control. He's not grasping for what he already has. Ehud saves the people through God. Then they forget again and they reject God and they're oppressed, and we pick up in Judges 4, 9, where Barak, the, uh, the leader of the army, the general, if you will, is supposed to lead the army to attack their enemies and bring freedom once again. But instead he asks a woman prophetess to be the one that does so. She says to him, I will go with you, she said, but you will receive no honor, no honor on the road you are about to take. Because the Lord will sell Sisera, the leader of the oppositional army, into a woman's hand. So Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kadesh. Okay, so culturally, a woman who is not the leader of the army, a left-handed guy, and the youngest brother so far who save the nation. Who is this about? Who is in control? Gideon is the next example and, and maybe the, the best if you knew Gideon, you would not stand him. You would hate Gideon. He's weak. He's not confident. He's the last person you would want to place your life in the hands of. Here's what we, we read after quite a bit of God convincing Gideon he can do this. We read this in Judges 6, 15 through 16, when they are once again oppressed because they walked away from the only God who was faithful. God, or, uh, Gideon says to God, please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Look. My family is the weakest in Manasseh, 
and I am the youngest in my father's house. And God says, I know, that's why I picked you. You will strike Midian down as if it were one man. I will be with you. The theme continues. In Judges 7.12, we, we read of who they're facing. Who is this enemy? Now the Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the Kedemites had settled down in the valley like a swarm of locusts, and their camels were as innumerable as the sand on the seashore. We're about to read that Israel's army numbered 32,000, so they can count. They just can't count that high. And so they're going, this army's too big to count. Matter of fact, it's not one army or two armies. There's three that are opposing God's people. The stage is set for a pretty epic battle, or maybe one that's just not going to go well as all because 32,000 verses can't put a number on it. It's not real, not real exciting, especially when you have Gideon, the youngest brother in the weakest family of his tribe leading the army. But we read this in Judges 7. This is where you start to think God is out of his mind. Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and everyone who was with him got up early and camped beside the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them, below the hill of Mareth. In the valley, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many people for me to hand the Midianites over to you. That just doesn't make sense. You never have too many in the army. And then here's what God says, and this is tying the theme of judges together. You have too many or else Israel might brag, I did it myself. So after this cycle... After this time where God saves and they forget and take credit and go, you know what, I can do this on my own. Just like Adam and Eve said, hey God, you made a good world, but I think I can do this on my own. God says, you know what, they just don't seem to get it. And I don't want them to have any reason to think that they are capable. Because when they walk away from me, all they experience is pain and brokenness. And so he makes this crazy statement to this weak little guy named Gideon. And he says, you have too many people. And Gideon goes, what are you doing to me? We continue on to the, the next screen. Now announce in the presence of the people, whoever is fearful and trembling may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. Okay, at least this isn't too bad. It's the people that are the most afraid. So 22,000, remember they can count, of the people turned back and 10,000 remained. At least there's still an army. Then the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many people. Gideon's got to be freaking out. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. If I say to you, this one can go with you, he can go. But if I say about anyone, this one cannot go with you, he cannot go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Separate everyone who laps water with his tongue like a dog. That's weird. Do the same with everyone who kneels to drink. And you got to think to yourself, okay, God's got a plan. The weirdos that drink like dogs, they're probably <laughs> not going to be the ones in this fight. The number of those who laughed with their hands to their mouths was 300 men. Perfect. We're only going to lose 300 weirdos who drink like dogs. That's fantastic. But what does God do? The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and hand the Midianites over to you. God is out of his mind. But everyone else is to go home. So Gideon sent all the Israelites to their tents, but the 300 who took the people's provisions and their trumpets. The camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Guess who wins the battle? Didion and the 300. They hardly even fought. What God did is turn the three armies and nations against each other, and they devoured themselves, and Israel was left 
triumphant. So what is the whole book of Judges about? God choosing the weakest, the least expected people so that we would never doubt who is actually in control. So that when we get to a book like Esther where his name is not even mentioned, we could know even where his name's not known. Even in our moments when his name is not known or where it is it's mocked or rebelled against or rejected, he's still in control even when it doesn't seem like it at all. We pick up in Esther 2, verse 1. We're back to King Xerxes. Sometime later, when King Xerxes' rage had cooled down, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what was decided against her. The king's personal attendant suggested, let a search be made for beautiful young women for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in each province of his kingdom so that they may assemble all the beautiful young women to the harem at the fortress of Susa. Put them under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and give them the required beauty treatments. Then the young wo woman who pleases, that's a key word, who pleases the king will become queen instead of Vashti. This suggestion pleased the king, and he did accordingly. In just two sentences, we have the word pleased twice. Not only is King Xerxes, Xerxes grasping for control, he's also grasping for pleasure because he is in need. He's not full. He's not secure. He wants. And so he's seeking pleasure. Which is crazy because what we're going to talk about next week as Esther enters the scene is how God is putting all of these things into place. As the wise men of the land where God's name is not known are ordering and orchestrating things, putting them into place all so that God could save this nation. Because he's faithful and he made a promise. This too greatly contrasts our God, Jesus. Now, I want to read to you Philippians 2, 5 through 11, which shows how significant of a contrast we have with Xerxes compared to Jesus. This is what we read about Jesus. Paul says, make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus. As, as I read this, think about how in control you actually have to be to have this type of posture. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Other translations say, to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man, in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. That's fascinating. If we just pause there and think about Esther, where his name is not written or recorded or known, Jesus will be the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's a song by a band named down here called How Many Kings. And it paints this picture so beautifully. How many kings leave their throne? How many kings neglect who they are for the sake of their people? What God in his right mind leaves his place in heaven to take on the form of a man... Not only that, but to then give himself up on a cross as a sacrifice for the people that have rejected him. That kind of love does not make 
sense. That's why Paul prays for the Ephesians to have power not to do miracles or pray in tongues or, or speak well, simply that they would have power to grasp the love of God which surpasses all understanding. That's a big contrast from King Xerxes who's grasping for control and grasping for pleasure. So the God of the universe is fully in control, so he's never nervous about it, never has a doubt, and he's not grasping for pleasure. Rather, he gives lavishly. 1 John 3 puts it this way. Look at how great a love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children, and we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Look at what great love the NIV says the Father has lavished upon us. Given beyond measure, given beyond what we can understand is what the word lavish means. It's so much, it's more than we need or want or even can desire. This is the extent to which this God gives, but we really has no reason to. Look at what great love the Father has lavished upon us. Are you ever around one of those people that is just like so secure in who they are? They're not insecure, they're whole, relatively speaking. I mean, we all have issues, but they're not trying to prove something. They're not trying to impress. They're just good. And in and, and such, they're life-giving people because they're not trying to take life or prove something. That's Jesus except beyond any person. He has zero inadequacies, insecurities. He's perfectly whole in his relationship with the Father, and he has no needs. Jesus greatly contrasts King Xerxes. I maybe have mentioned this a time or a bunch of times, but I really like basketball. And so last week, college basketball started, which is my favorite sport and time of the year. And I was watching number one, Kentucky at the time, play Evansville. And this is hilarious because a guy after last service told me he was about to put on, he's from, from Louisville, so close, and he was about to put on his Kentucky hat. <laughs> and then something told him not to, which is hilarious because we're going to talk about how Kentucky lost. And so there's this game between the number one team in the country and this no-name team, and it's not even supposed to be close. They're supposed to win by like 40 points. But halfway through the game, Evansville's winning. And with five minutes left, Evansville is winning. And so the players, the coaches, the fans would never tell you this, but the entire time they have to be asking the question, can we hang on? Can we actually do this? Will this last? Maybe just maybe can we upset the best team in the country Last year, I, I was coaching at, at Tri-City here in town, and for the first time, we made the playoffs. It was awesome. And so there's like 30 or 40 teams in the league, and the top 16 make the playoffs, and we just barely made it in, which we were thrilled with. But what that meant is we had to play the, the top two or three teams in the playoffs. So really, we had no chance. We were just excited to get in. I'm looking at the team scores ahead, and they were just destroying people by 50, 70 points. So it wasn't going to be pretty. But the game starts and our guys were just doing amazing. They're diving for balls. Every pass is perfect. Every shot's going in and we're winning. At halftime, we're up by like 10 or 12 points. The second half starts. I have no voice left. I'm yelling and coaching and, and we're going at it. And I'm like, we might do this. We actually might win a game in the playoffs. That's not supposed to happen. And, and there's this like nervous excitement. Can we hang on? Can we hold on? Can we do it? That's what happens when you're the underdog. And there's this, this kind of game flow thing that happens, right? There's good moments. You go on a roll. Your team makes three shots. The other team misses a few. And the whole time I'm hoping, God, please make that shot go in. Don't let that shot go in. 
Sometimes life feels like that. It has its ups, it has its downs, it has its beautiful, it has its broken. It has its seasons. Sometimes it's good for a long time. Sometimes it feels like I can't keep going. And we get nervous and we wonder, can we hang on? Maybe we's a marriage. Maybe we is a relationship with a parent or a child. Can I get through this physically? Can this relationship last financially? How's this gonna work out? We might do this, I hope, but not confidently. Can we hang on? Here's the thing. Never once has Jesus ever asked the question, can we hang on? Never once has Jesus ever wondered. Never once has there been any doubt. Never once has the question even entered his mind. Think about this. While he is on the cross hanging, here's what Jesus has the audacity to do. This is how in control he is. The people that put the nails through his body that are mocking him in this moment as he is suffering, bleeding out, and dying. He looks at them in this moment. This is how in control he is. And he goes, Father, forgive them. Who has the capacity or control to give forgiveness to people killing them as it's happening? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And then just a little bit later, he cries out, it is finished. And like we talked about last week, Satan rejoices. Sin, death, and Satan think they are victorious. But three days later, and not once in, those three day, in that three-day peri- three period of time, does Jesus ever worry? He rises victorious conquering sin, death, and, and Satan. Uh, Paul puts it this way in Colossians 2. He says this, he, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities. They have no more weapon that's valuable and disgraced them publicly. Here's a display. He triumphed over them by Christ. Not once was he worried or nervous. Jesus is never nervous or grasping for control and he gives fully and gives lavishly. So wherever you're at in life, the ups or the downs, the highs and the lows, and you'll continue to go through both. We all do. It's life. God's not nervous. You know what might actually be the question he's wondering, though? Is it hard enough? Is it hard enough? And I hate saying that because I've been through moments, you've been through moments, and I go, yeah, it is. It doesn't need to be any harder. There doesn't need to be any more brokenness. But you know what he's doing? He's going, I want them to be sure that they don't ever turn to themselves because when they do, that's where real brokenness happens. That's where real pain that lasts forever happens. I want them never to question me again, and so I'm going to make it in this moment like 300 against the armies of the world so that they only look to my name because my name is the only name where true perfect hope can be found. So if you're going through something right now, know two things. Jesus is not nervous. You probably are, and that's okay. You're allowed to be. But no, he's not. Not at all. He never has been, and he never will be, because he's not grasping for control. He has it fully. And know this. You might think, I can't do anything. I, I don't have a role to play in this. I'm left-handed. I'm the youngest brother of the weakest tribe. I don't have the gifting, the skill set, the power, the money. That doesn't matter. He can, and he will use you because he's fully in control. Now, let me close with the hope that we have in Christ and just kind of pray this over you out of Colossians chapter 3. Paul says this, 
And let the peace of the Messiah, to which you were also called in one body, control your hearts. Be thankful. Let the message about the Messiah dwell richly among you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Because even where his name is not known, he's still in control, and he's with you, and he's for you. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are in control, that you are good, and that you love. Give us power to grasp that love and your faithfulness. To trust even when it's hard, especially then. And God, even in that, the, the good moments, may we not turn to self and think that we are responsible, but may we open-handedly recognize that everything that is good is a gift from you. So, Father, we ask that you lead us in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're new with us at Restoration Church, we continue to worship in response in three ways each week. The first is through reflection. So as you reflect in the next few moments, I'd encourage you to reflect on your season of life. Where are you at? What's going on? What questions do you have? Know that in those moments or the ones to come, God is not nervous. The second way that we worship is through taking communion. As you take the, the bread and you dip it into the cup, what we're remembering, because we take this in remembrance of him, our Christ, is that he did not stay in the grave. He rose victoriously. He was not nervous then and he's not nervous now. And so as you consume communion, you recognize that Christ is in you. So there's no reason for anxiety, even in the most anxious moments. He is good. He is faithful. He's loving and he's in control. So there's two stations here and two in the back of the room. Whether you take communion individually or maybe with your family or community, know God is with you. And lastly, we respond by giving. Part of what's happening as we worship and our giving as we go, I'm not in control of myself, of my finances, of my gifting, but I know the one who is, and so we return to him what is his. And this is the way we practice not taking things, not taking matters into our own hands. And so there's two boxes for giving in the back of the room, or there's instructions on how to do so on the, the website if you prefer to do that. But giving is part of our worship. Let's continue to worship now in our response. <laughs>